Hello, and welcome to another episode of Emma and Rebecca Talk IP. This is the podcast where we discuss topics catching our attention in the world of intellectual property and attempt to unravel what's really going on. My name is Rebecca Gay. And I'm Emma Isles. Today, we are joined by Patrick Gay, one of our competition law colleagues, to talk about the state of play with Australia's competition laws and settlements in IP cases. Hi, Emma. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Welcome aboard, Pat. Thanks for joining us. Um, now, the intersection of IP and competition law is always a bit of an interesting topic. IP is generally focused on monopolies as a reward for creative output, and competition law is all about ensuring businesses can compete fairly for the benefit of the consumer. So at one level, you might say the two areas are a bit contradictory, but that's really only at a superficial level. Actually, the World Intellectual Property Organization, or WIPO, for example, says that IP is pro-competitive because it allows consumers to make choices between competing entrepreneurs and the goods and services they sell. So the idea is that without IP, less efficient businesses could just copy the goods and services of more efficient competitors. The less efficient businesses therefore have no incentive to try to be innovative and to try and develop their own offering of new products and services. So having IP rights encourages the development of new innovations and that gives consumers more choices. That's right, Rebecca. Although, of course, if the intellectual property system is abused, for example, if patents are granted for things that are not really patentable subject matter, or trademark protection is given to non-distinctive brands, then this could have the effect of stifling competition. So there's a fine balance here. A recent example in Australia of the interface between competition law and intellectual property arose in the context of a settlement agreement that was entered into to resolve a patent dispute. And that dispute was between the drug company Celgene an Indian-based generic drug manufacturer, Natco, and its Australian-based distributor, Juno. Before we get into the facts of that, Pat, it would probably be a good idea for you to explain some of the background concepts that will help us all understand this development. And perhaps let's start with cartel conduct. No problem. So as you've mentioned, Australian competition law prohibits cartel conduct. Cartel conduct occurs at a high level when businesses come together to act in coordination with each other in a cartel. Examples can include price fixing, supply restrictions, bid rigging, or market sharing. Engaging in cartel conduct is an automatic contravention of the law. There doesn't need to be any analysis of any actual or likely effect on competition. There are certain exceptions for joint ventures and other types of legitimate conduct which aren't relevant here, but importantly, there is also the ability for the competition law regulator, being the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, or the ACCC, to authorize con cartel conduct in circumstances where the public benefits associate, associated with that conduct outweigh any anti-competitive detriment. And in relation to IP rights, businesses used to have the benefit of a limited exception for the licensing of certain IP rights, but that exception was scrapped in 2019 and so while parties used to rely on it in the context of settlements of IP disputes, particularly where the settlement allowed the alleged infringer to enter the market before the expiry of the relevant IP rights. But that's not the world we're in now. That's right, Emma. 
And that changed position was highlighted last year as a result of the litigation you've already mentioned between Celgene, Natco and Juno. So Celgene owns patents related to Revlimid and Pomalist. I don't know who comes up with these drug names, but they're always tongue teasers. Um, so these are drugs that are used in the treatment of certain types of blood cancer, and they're very valuable drugs, um, with the total sales of Revlimid, for example, being in the order of $3 billion in Australia. Um, and interestingly, although it's got nothing to do with competition law, um, they're actually drugs which are derived from thalidomide, so there are strict requirements preventing pregnant women from taking them, not surprisingly. Um, Juno, a distributor of generic medicines, also supplies in Australia a drug indicated for the treatment of two of the three types of blood cancers that are treated by the cell gene products. Uh, so this all started, the, the, this, the proceedings all started because Juno and Natco wanted to clear the way to allow their generic version of cell genes two compound product um, to come onto the market. So in late 2020, they applied to the federal court to have one particular cell gene patent invalidated. And in response to that action, cell gene um, went nuclear and cross-claimed for infringement of the patent um, that Juno and Natco had challenged, but also brought into play another seven patents relating to those two products. That's quite a few patents to assert, Rebecca. Now, following various interlocutory skirmishes, uh, the proceedings were stayed partway through the trial in August of 2021. The parties then negotiated a settlement and license agreement, which was intended to allow Juno and Natco to bring their generic products to market on an agreed date before patent expiry. In December 2021, Juno, Natco and Celgene then sought authorization from the ACCC in respect of the agreement. Pat, can you explain to us how authorization works? Sure. So as I mentioned before, parties can approach the ACCC and ask for authorization. Authorization, when it is given, essentially means that the relevant conduct, here the licensing of the generic products, are immune from the application of Australia's competition laws. When the ACCC considers whether to authorize conduct, it applies what's referred to as a net public benefit test. As part of that test, it asks whether the conduct would result or would be likely to result in a benefit to the public and whether the benefit would outweigh the detriment to the public that would result or be likely to result from the conduct, essentially a balancing exercise. Now, public benefits and detriments are determined and defined broadly. For example, a public benefit is defined as anything of value to the community generally. Any contribution to the aims pursued by society, including as one of its principal elements, the achievement of the economic goals of efficiency and progress. So ultimately, the ACCC may grant authorization if the conduct results in net public benefits or if it does not substantially lessen competition. And if it grants authorization, then the parties involved receive statutory immunity from legal action under the Competition and Consumer Act for the specified conduct while the authorization is in force. Thanks for that explanation, Pat. So if we go back to the Celgene situation, uh, we've got, as Emma explained, Celgene, Juno and Natco seeking authorization for a proposed settlement agreement under which Celgene would grant non-exclusive licenses to Juno and Natco, which would allow the supply of the generic products from a specified launch date. And presumably the applicants had decided or determined that that agreement 
um, which allowed for the early entry, presented a potential cartel risk, uh, and they therefore sought authorization from the ACCC. And in seeking that authorization, they submitted that the proposed conduct would have the necessary clear and substantial public benefits, which did outweigh the proposed conduct. And they said that included because the it would enable the supply of generic products before the expiry of the relevant cell gene patents, which would trigger an immediate 25% price reduction on the PBS for those products. And so that was a cost saving for the federal government. Um, and given these are $3 billion products, that's um, not an insubstantial saving. Uh, it would also introduce alter an alternative supply, which would ensure greater supply-side security of these pharmaceutical products, which were being used for the treatment of, of blood cancers. Um, and it would facilitate the expeditious settlement of legal proceedings, which would result in a litigation cost saving. Might sound convincing, but that wasn't accepted by the ACCC, was it, Pat? No, no, it wasn't. I, I suppose one thing is worth pointing out was that the ACCC, in rejecting the arguments, didn't reject them as a matter of theory. It essentially said, in respect of many of the points, that the parties did not give the ACCC sufficient evidence to make out uh, the particular uh, assertions. So at the end of the day, there was an evidence issue when you're looking at this particular application. But at the ACCC found in this regard that there was insufficient evidence as to the significance of any potential PBS savings as a result of early entry of the generic product, that there was no evidence of current supply side issues, and it was unclear the extent to which the licensing agreement would result in any greater supply side security. And the ACCC wasn't satisfied that the litigation would proceed without the proposed um, uh, conduct or that the litigation cost savings would result in any public benefit. In terms of public detriment, the ACCC considered that the agreement would likely reduce the competitive tension and commercial uncertainty that would otherwise exist in relation to generic entry. And in the circumstances, the ACCC was ultimately not satisfied that the public benefits outweighed the public detriment. The pu the, that decision was a draft determination and the, the parties in the public were then given the opportunity uh, to make further submissions before a final decision was issued. And, and what we don't know is what further submissions were made by the applicants, uh, but we do know that there were four other submissions made to the ACCC, uh, and the two most substantive of these both came from the generic medicine sector. Interestingly, these advanced opposing views. So one was from Pharmacor, an Australian generic supplier owned by India's Alchem Laboratories. Pharmacor supported the draft determination and it noted that the lucrative first mover advantage uh, that authorisation would likely confer on Juno was relevant. It also noted that if authorisation were granted, the requirement for further generics to create a risk evaluation and management system for this particular uh, drug would pose additional barriers to entry. On the other hand, the Generic and Biosimilar Medicines Association was in favour of the settlement uh, and noted that if the ACCC were to deny authorisation, there'd be a potential chilling effect on patent settlements more generally. And they emphasised the public benefits of earlier generic entry of medication and disagreed with many of the concerns raised by the ACCC in the draft determination. But what happened next, Rebecca? Well, uh... 
before the ACCC could actually issue a final decision, the parties actually withdrew their request for authorization, which means we don't have a final determination from the ACCC and um, this particular issue essentially remains unresolved. Um, what we have seen is that the litigation between the parties has been finalised, so presumably a settlement of some kind, whether it's the same that um, was put to the ACCC or some different version of it, we don't know, but it went ahead and the proceedings were resolved. But where does that leave other parties look, looking to settle IP disputes in the future, Pat? Well, as the conduct was not authorised, uh, proceeding with proceeding with the settlement agreement for these particular parties may mean that the ACCC would investigate the agreement for a contravention of the competition laws. Uh, as, as we stand today, you know, the withdrawal occurred in August 2022, and there's no public indication of any ongoing investigation and certainly no commencement of proceedings by uh, the ACCC. So it may be unlikely that the ACCC took any further step. It's worth noting that in its decision, it made it clear that this decision did not preclude the parties uh, proceeding with the settlement, where it considered that the settlement was otherwise uh, in compliance with Australian competition law. Um, the decision to withdraw the application and the lack of any clear direction from the ACCC as it, to its position on patent settlements does, however, create some uncertainty as to the approach the ACCC will take to settlement arrangements. Uh, if the ACCC had authorized the conduct, it would have provided a clear and relatively efficient mechanism for parties to address residual competition law risk. They could simply, when they had a settlement, bring that settlement to the ACCC and seek its blessing in terms of uh, seeking authorization. In the absence of any ACCC guidance or any on this matter, parties will need to continue to take a first principles approach to the implementation of a settlement agreement which is essentially what the parties had done to date. This was the first instance of any authorization application. In the past, people just generally took their own views as to whether or not the conduct complied with Australian competition law and took the view, presumably, that authorization was not required, and presumably they will continue to do that going forward. It will be interesting to see, however, whether or not the ACCC seizes the initiative and provides some guidance on its views as to whether or not a settlement will in fact contravene uh, Australian competition law as compared to providing views as to whether or not the evidence in any particular case satisfies the test for authorization. So Pat, do you think overall that this means IP settlement agreements are now a riskier thing to do given the ACCC's draft determination or do things remain unchanged? Not necessarily and not from a technical legal perspective. The ACCC was at pains to assert that while the technical test for authorization was not met in this particular circumstance, this didn't mean that they'd concluded that in the absence of authorization, there would be or was likely to be a contravention of Australian competition laws. Uh, if the parties proceeded to enter a settlement on those particular terms. That said, comments that the ACCC have made might be said to increase the enforcement risk associated with any particular settlement. What we have is a situation where the ACCC was not prepared to accept on face value the benefits associated with the settlement. So they were not prepared to accept that a settlement in itself 
must always be pro-competitive because it would result in the early entry of a generic product. So in those circumstances, it might mean that parties need to look more closely at their um, at their settlement arrangements to confirm that they're comfortable that they don't um, contravene any element of the competition law. As you said before, it places us in a little bit of a period of uncertainty, and it would be helpful if the ACCC could issue some specific guidance on its approach to the competition law issues, the core competition law issues, as compared to its approach to any authorization application. Well, we will stay tuned to see whether the ACCC does in fact issue any such guide guidance. Um, I guess that's yet it makes it yet another topic for us to keep watching closely, Emma. Um, Pat, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing those insights. And thanks everyone for joining and listening. Um, until next time. Thank you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.